Welcome to Dominating Your Investments, a podcast where you will learn about stocks, personal finance, and creating generational wealth. I'm your host, Dom Rinaldi. I have a special guest today. I have Dylan, Mr. Blue Suit Dylan from Twitter, for those of you who know him. I hope you follow him. If not, I believe the exact is at BLU Suit Dylan. Good friend of mine on FinTwit. I mean, I see him talk about Digital Turbine and Palantir and a, a lot of other stocks that I'm very passionate about. And we're just going to talk stocks. We're just going to keep it casual. Just really talk about what we love. And we can do this for hours, but we'll, we'll respect your time, listeners, and we'll, we'll keep it to an hour. We'll keep it to an hour. And we're just going to talk about what's going on in the market. You know, we had some great earnings from Trade Desk today. A lot of other earnings last week, and, and we still got more coming on the rest of the week. I got my coffee. I got my bourbon. <laughs> he has his water. <laughs> we're, we're, we're primed, ready to go. So Dylan, why don't you just give the audience a, a little uh, synopsis about yourself and, and how you got started investing, and we'll just take it from there. You know, we had a, a, a short conversation here before we started recording about, you know, why we ended up getting started in the first place. And it, for me, you know, I, I'm not sure if you've ever read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's kind of the classic, right? I haven't. I haven't read it yet. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get around doing that. So I, I think I really just picked up that book one day, and it was actually an audio book, and I'm in outside sales. And I, I just started listening to Rich Dad, Poor Dad while I was driving around from office to office. So, you know, obviously, when I went on into the next office, I'd, I'd pause it and then come back into my car, start driving, and, and I'd listen to this book and it it opened up my eyes to what wealth really is and what financial education really is. So what I ended up doing is, you know, I I think I started the Twitter alias. I've always been on Twitter and it actually says it started in 2010. So I've always had a Twitter, but I I switched around my alias at in August of 2020 around the pandemic, like shortly after the pandemic. And you know, I was following a lot of people on, on Twitter and this is when I really started getting into it. And at first I didn't even go into it thinking I was going to be a content creator in the first place, but I saw people buying crap companies constantly. (laughs) And I just kept thinking to myself, I'm like, oh gosh, this isn't going to end well. So I I just started posting on Twitter and, and don't get me wrong, by no means do I have all the answers. And I, I learn every day. I think that every great investor constantly learns and tries to get better, but I just started posting on Twitter and and really just setting out and I had a mission and the the overall goal at the end of the day is, is really just to help people make money in the stock market. So, you know, it was, I can't even, I don't even really know my portfolio returns, but I think this year so far I'm I'm up, I don't know, 70 something percent. We had a good day today, probably 75% year to date. It's been a tough market this year too. So that's fabulous. But it's, you know, I, I think that, what I really focus on and, and I think where I get my niche and my, my niche audience from is really, you know, 80, 20. So it's 80% fundamentals and 20% technicals and, and really trying to make sure that I can understand each business and, you know, like understand digital turbine. Right. So we both love digital turbine and really understanding like, where have they been? Like, what's the story behind this stock? And not only that, but like, where are they going and how are they going to continue to grow their revenue and earnings growth? And like, what's the long-term thesis behind that? And Palantir as well, you know, both you and I, I think that's how we really connected in the first yeah, place. Is- yeah, I think that was, that was the one. We're both super bullish on Palantir. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, Palantir, it's, it really is like that next generation space software company, if you ask me. Like, it's, it's going to just be a big part of our future later on down the road. But 
more or less, you know, I ended up really getting started. Just, man, I just want to help people, you know, really just try to spread the knowledge, spread the information. And if I can get somebody pick, you know, help somebody pick a really good stock or really help somebody out manage their portfolio, that, that is more rewarding to me than any dollar finger figure. That's for sure. Yeah. We share that passion. I think there's others in the FinTwit community you can see who's extremely passionate about just talking about stocks all day. I'm a little jealous from some of the, some of you guys who are able to, to uh, tweet a little more than I am, depending on, on the schedule of our jobs. But the community's you know very tight knit, right? And I, I think everyone for the most part means well, right? I do always talk about how there's others who get upset when you don't like their stock, or you may not even know enough about their stock to say, hey, that's in my top 10. But there's so many stocks and good companies that are out there. There's also a lot yeah. of bad ones. And there's a lot of ways to win in the market. So maybe you could elaborate on the 80-20 rule. And we were just talking about how you mix technicals with fundamentals. I'm looking here at a, at a screenshot for your pin tweet from October 27th around the style of companies that you pursue and when you try to get in and find them in their life cycle. And I, I find it interesting because I would love to know how to get more into that first entry phase is where you kind of have your arrows poured in before they're kind of fully discovered by institutional money is what I would guess. And so, yeah, I just would like to understand, you know, some of the things that have allowed you to get in on, because I look at your portfolio and you have a lot of companies that I know you got in very early on and are not afraid of risk. So maybe you can just talk about that. Well, so I would never really consider it risky because, so a lot of people use charts to guide their direction, but what I really look at it is I, I really just look at the fundamentals and all I'm really focused on. And if I really had to break down this investing strategy, it's all about growth, but there's, there's different types of growth and growth stocks. So like you look at a, a company like skills and they consistently release great growth numbers. But the problem is, is that when you, when you dig into their business model a little bit more, you start to understand that they're essentially their sales and marketing expense is just incredibly high, which says that they're buying their way to that growth. And there's a lot of other companies that are doing that. So it's really broken down into the numbers. I think, I think the best way to really describe this is, is going to be to tell a story, right? And one stock in particular I can really talk about is Fubo, that a lot of people think that that's a risky stock. But when you really dig down deep into Fubo and you start to understand the trends that are going on within the numbers, they call it their adjusted I think they call it their adjusted contribution margin or something like that, but it's basically their gross profit margin. Like mm -hmm. what are they making per subscriber and how much money is that consistently going up in? So when you think of Fubo, when it first IPO'd, I, I saw that it was a sports first streaming company and I was very interested into it right off the bat. And I was just like, okay, this is very unique. There's no sports first streaming uh, companies out there. But then I, I had to think to myself, okay, well, there's YouTube TV, there's Sling TV, there's Hulu, Hulu, Hulu. <laughs> yeah, yep, Hulu. there's tons um, of them. Yeah, so there's a lot of other companies that are out there and, and you have to think to yourself, okay, so how are they going to find their competitive niche? And what they've really done to start their brand is that they cover soccer. You know, I think Europeans would call it football. And, Most uh, but popular us Americans, sport in the world, so. 
exactly. Not a bad sport to pick if you're going to start pick, covering one. <laughs> Correct. So they have they have exclusive content rights, and I think that this is just back in spring, and I think they're going to crush their earnings. But it's Conma Bowl. I think that's what it's called. But they really started with soccer is is how they ended up getting their niche in the first place, and then you start thinking about okay, well that's very interesting. Um, what else? How are they actually going to reach profitability? And you can see that their growth numbers and their subscriber count continues to accelerate or even just maintain growth. So their ARPU, their advertising growth, and as well as their subscriber-related costs is starting to come down. So they were originally losing, I broke it down, about 6.5% per subscriber. Now they are losing 4.5%. So that's going to be 200 basis points year over year. So what that tells you is that they are slowly making more money on their subscribers than they add that advertising revenue to that to increase ARPU. But this is where things really get interesting, right? So you know that Fubo is a money losing company. A lot of people think it's risky. Then that's when you have to think to yourself, okay, how long do they have with their current cash burn to stay alive as a company? They recently did an offering and you can actually see, and I've been tracking Fubo's market cap and I, and I anticipate on them releasing not too long and not too long that they'll actually say that they finished their secondary offering. So they're not offering any more stock and they increased the cash on the balance sheet up to about $900 million. So what this tells you as an investor is now they have $900 million. Let's say they're burning about $30 million in cash. And that was to, that was every single quarter that they were doing that while they were launching their sports book. They just officially launched their sports book, right? Mm -hmm. So now you think to yourself, where is Fubo going? And what can we anticipate for the earnings report? Because the earnings are going to be tomorrow. If they ended up releasing and they provide guidance on the sports book ARPU, as well as advertising, how is that contributing to the ARPU? And then also, how is their subscriber subscription costs, how is that costing them as well? And then what you start to see is that there's a very clear path to profitability. And now with every single stock, it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter because at some point, there's a lot of stocks that will crash and burn if they don't have the path to profitability. So every single great growth stock out there needs to have two things in common. They need to be growing very fast or they need to be on the path to profitability or already profitable and growing earnings quickly. So this is really where I find out a lot of those companies. And Agrify is actually going to be another one, which is a 200 or $300 million company. And this is the same story here where, and, and I think I bought it at 13 and it just traded up at $22 per share today. And Agrify is going to be another one of those companies where I found it very, very early just because they had high revenue growth. And I dug deep down into the fundamental story to get a better understanding about where the business is going long-term. How do they fall in the competitive environment? And then also get a really good understanding of what the business model is and what their plan and path to profitability is. And if you figure all that, if you figure out all those fundamentals, and if you really are able to put together a story and a really deep fundamental understanding of the business, then this is really where you start buying stocks very, very early. And more importantly, this is where you're going to get the biggest returns. So I think that on October 27th, you can see that there was a couple stocks in there where I have over 100% returns. I mean, I think now, now I have Silvergate. That's going to be on there too. Digital Ocean's getting close as well. 
AgriFi is getting very close and there's a, a couple other companies in there. And that, these are just stocks I picked this year. But that has a lot to do with my, how I really fundamentally look into these companies and the questions that I ask myself and having to make sure that I understand the business at just a very, very high level. So walk uh, us through, go ahead. Maybe walk us through when you say um, how you do your due diligence and research these companies. Are you looking at CEO interviews on YouTube? Are you looking at Seeking Alpha for other writers? Do you have subscriptions to uh, certain uh, stock uh, recommendation sites? Like, or, or it could be a co- conglomerate of those things. I know that my research process consists of all of that. So, you know, I'm looking at your portfolio and I, I definitely see some up and coming tickers that not everyone would be aware of, but that have, have deemed great results. So we just maybe like to understand how you're screening for those and, and kind of identifying and then diving deeper. Yeah. So I think FinTwit is going to be one of the best communities, just following a bunch of people that really like to talk about their stocks. And I can tell pretty quick about who's a good stock picker and who's not just because of the, the companies that they're picking. So there's a lot of people out there that just love to pump stocks and they don't really care. And they don't really care about what their followers may or may not think. And sometimes they have 40, 50, 60,000 followers and they're just pumping stocks all day, you know, but there's yeah. other, there's going to be a lot of other content creators out there that love to talk about their stocks and just share that they have a new good idea. And these are typically the people that I really like to follow. So FinTwit I'd say is probably where I get about 60% of my ideas and then I'm, I'm a subscriber to Seeking Alpha, and I, I consistently scrub that as well. And I check a lot of the new IPOs. So I think Amplitude is another really good one. And I released a, a write-up on that, and I ended up buying it shortly after it IPO'd. I just made sure that I, I held on to it long enough. And then Global E. So I bought Global E, originally started buying it at 27 and it ran all the way up to $70. But that's just because I, I was aware that the IPO just happened. And I said, okay, how can I research this company more? And there was a really unique story in there. And then D-Local was another one. So, I mean, it's all the same thing. So it's FinTwit, Seeking Alpha, IPO. So like, I always make sure I track all the, the, new, the newest IPOs that are coming out. I don't track SPACs as much as I used to anymore, just because I think that the, the, a lot of the CEOs lie and they try to paint a story. But the thing is, is, is I'll go through and I'll actually read a lot of those 10 cues to there you go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A so lot that, of people don't do that. I'm still kicking myself when you mentioned global E because yeah, so many people on so many podcasts talked about that one. I believe Shopify has a 5% ownership of them. It's almost 10% now. I think. 10% now. Yeah. I heard about it when you're talking exactly when you're like in the twenties. I thought for sure Shopify was just going to buy them out. And so I just didn't, just didn't dig in deep enough. And that thing ran so fast. Yeah. It's just like, wow. Okay. You know, so not to say that it's not, you know, you still get in if you're a long-term investor on good quality companies when they run fast, but it does mean something if you can get in at an earlier point when you look at the power of compounding, right? The difference between getting in at $20 and $70 and your compounding rate, holding it for 10 years, that total is going to be completely different. Yep. Um, so I just, when I look at that, I look at some of the other ones you have here and that, that's a, 
another one that jumps out of me is C Limited. And I, I just, I remember where I was when I was looking at my computer and I saw the recommendation from one of the services I had. I, I, I seen it all over Twitter and I was like, oh, that's a, that's a, that must be a, a you know, Southeast HS, a Chinese stock. I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> they, they don't, they don't yeah. disclose a lot of their stuff. You can't see what's really going on financially. It is a crab shoot. Um, that is too risky for me. So no, thank you. And then not even doing enough due diligence to dig in a little further. Uh, I kept hearing Joey Salitro talk about it on Motley Fool on, on the podcast and dug into it. And it's, it's, it's not China. <laughs> it's Singapore. <laughs> yeah. And so once I read up and, and learned from, you know, all the different FinTwit write-ups that I've seen on it and listened to Forrest Lee and then learned his story. Shout outs to from growth to value who who covers the stock exceptionally well. I was like, I got to get it. So I, I got in at 140 thinking, well, I'm getting in high, but I still think this is a, you know, 10 X from here. And, you know, it's one of those things where you have to hold for a while. You have to be able to just, and that's the beauty of C limited is like what I did notice. And, and me and Tony from pounding the table talked about this was when big hits happen in the market. Some of your best stocks will hold their institutional strength and you'll know that they can endure the the storm and that those, when they do have their news and they do have their catalysts, boy, you better watch out because they're going to run. And you may get, you know, you may get a couple chances when it goes down 10, 15%, but that may be all you get. And you just have to keep adding and keep building, making sure your thesis is intact. And the power of compounding will take care of itself. That's what I did with NVIDIA. You know, NVIDIA, I got in at 144 when we were going through all those tariff issues and and fighting over, you know, what we were going to do with China on that. And it was affecting them very heavily, as well as Xilinx. Xilinx lost half of its value right off the bat. And I still hold, I haven't sold either, you know, any shares. And now my NVIDIA is like, a seven or eight bagger and my Xilinx is a three bagger. And so, you know, and I just, you know, while doing that, you make sure your thesis is not changing. Like, okay, the leadership is not changing the product development, the growth, you know, sometimes there's going to be catalysts that, and that quote from Buffett is so true that initially the, the stock markets of a voting machine, yep. but at the end of the day, Give it a decade or two, it's a weighing machine. And that's where you see a lot of these other companies that may go run in the world we live in now, 200, 300% in a year. And you're like, that's not normal. And then they come all the way back down to earth and sometimes even crumble. But those that grow 20, 15% annually, year after year after year. And it's just like, you know, Adobe is a great example. You know, I don't own any shares of Adobe. But that would be a great example of a stock that it's not going anywhere. It may not be exciting to follow anymore, but they are going to continue to compound, right? So I just look at your portfolio and that that's definitely one of the things that, that jump out at me. Now I have well, to ask, go ahead. Well, I was going to just say that this is what a lot of investors, you know, I, I say investors, not necessarily traders, because traders usually have their own system. But a lot of investors overlook the two most important things that contribute to any share price, revenue and earnings. 
like in every single and in the best investors in the world. So even like how to make money in stocks. And we were just talking about how I was reading that book, Peter Lynch, who is an award winning, not even not necessarily an award winning, but like one of the Wall Street's. What's that? <laughs> He's one of the godfathers of investing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and even Warren Buffett. So all the best investors and the best traders, they all do the same thing. They focus on revenue growth and earnings growth. If the co- if the company is even like negative earnings, if they get a little less negative earnings, that is still earnings growth. So if their EPS, like let's say it's negative forty five one year. And then all of a sudden it goes to negative 20 the next year. Well, that's still EPS growth. And that's all that matters to these institutions. And then if you think to yourself, like, how do stocks move in the first place? Institutions need to buy them. And they're not going to buy them unless there's revenue and earnings growth and there's profit behind it. No, and I I definitely think the institutional ownership gets overlooked. I would also say institutional ownership can be manipulated in the fact that those who have money in the market, there's always manipulation happening, whether you think it or not in retail. I honestly think that's one of the advantages we have as retail investors is my timeline is not 90 days. My timeline is not 12 months. I don't have to rebalance my portfolio. So if my thesis stays intact, I'm sitting fine, right? And I can also afford to get into a small cap company, which I think is a perfect segue to talk about skills. And buy the stock when it goes public and keep adding, whereas institutional will will hold off for a while, right? And they typically go for larger and mid-cap companies that have earnings and growth. Or there's a stipulation of what's going on in the media like Palantir, and it's misunderstood and people stay away from it. I think that creates generational buying opportunities for retail investors who do their homework. I agree. And I think uh, Facebook, otherwise known as Meta, this is the unique thing is I don't, I don't like Facebook just as much as anybody. And I'm pretty sure that that's why it trades at a discount on a, you know, on a very broad basis. The, the forward PE right now is somewhere like 22 or 23. And when you have a lot of its other peers that aren't growing even as fast, you got Apple trading at a forward PE of like 28, 29. I mean, sure, valuations are historically high right now. You know, Google's the same way. Microsoft's trading at a, at a very heavy premium. And you even got Amazon there too. Tesla is trading at a forward PE of, I think it's a little over a hundred now, but maybe it's even close to 200, but you got Facebook that's trading at this 22, 23. They're changing their business model. That's what a lot of people don't necessarily know about the name change. It's not the name change that made me want to buy it. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that they are a misunderstood company, just like how you said, and what they want to do is they want to become something new and they wanted to change the name to make sure that they transition into becoming new, a new business model. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads to the topic of, and we can start getting into some earnings too, and just open discussion on some tickers of optionality. Like when I look at a company, I look for sustainability I look for high revenue growth and high gross margins because if they're not profitable, I want to understand that their business model allots for them a path to profitability. Yep. I, I'm heavily invested in founder-led companies. I think when I looked at it, 95% of my investments are founder-led companies. I think that ultimately when we invest in stocks, we're investing in people. That's what we're investing in. You take Elon Musk out of Tesla, it's half its valuation. You take Bezos in his prime when he's building out AWS with, with 
Andy Jassy, half his valuation, right? You take Jensen out of NVIDIA, good luck, right? So, and the cultures that they, they cultivate, right? When you look at Glassdoor and look at NVIDIA, how many times they've won top 10 company to work for or best CEO, that tells you so much more than earnings report or revenue growth, in my opinion. Because that tells me their employees are invested and they don't even give a lot of stock out of NVIDIA, right? And they have such high reviews and high regard for the culture and what Jensen's built there that people stay a long time and keep their talent. And then you look at someone like a new up and comer, I won't say new, I say new to the public market, Palantir, who's done stock-based compensation to keep that top tier talent for 18 years now. And it's scrutinized because they're not profitable, but you take that SBC out of it and they are profitable. But what a brilliant way to compete against the Googles, the Facebooks, the, the Microsofts, because they have more money. They have more cash. Apple has more cash than most countries, you know? And so understanding that logically and just looking at it straight for what the facts are, people miss that that's a winning culture. That's winning leadership. That's protecting your top talent. And at the end of the day, everybody's fighting in technology for the top 1%. They're not, they don't care about the, the top five. They want that top one that's going to create that new generational patent or technology for the company, right? So I think that's just so overlooked. And then I look for reinventing itself or even taking a soft bank approach of investing in other companies that can make it either more profitable or more revenue, or just ultimately change the networking effects to where it's so sticky, it adds customers and the switching cost is so high, forget it. I'm just staying with it, right? I think Palantir checks all those boxes and we won't make this a Palantir episode just because every every episode of mine is almost a Palantir episode. (laughs) But we could talk about the same thing for, you know, uh, several other the tickers you have here. We, we could look at C-Limited. I mean, C-Limited is not stopping. C-Limited has their, their fintech arm. They have their e-commerce. They have their gaming that's funding all of the margin and all the cash flow. Very similar to how like AWS was funding Amazon and being that margin cash cow to, to grow the business. And now they're getting into AI because they understand that's going to be one of the most important facets of our world for the next 10 to 20 years they have CAI and they have C capital because they're helping Southeast Asia who's not banked and and needs finance to understand that they can be the bank right they have enough cash if you have a great idea and you're a business I will fund you but I will want shares I will want ownership of your company or we'll work something out and they're even doing food delivery right you know in certain areas so that to me, and doing it at the speed that they have done it on and execution on beat raise, beat raise, beat raise. I don't get caught up in the earnings so much as far as like, if you miss, you miss. But I just need to understand the miss, right? You look at Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, they've all had times in their careers of being a company that the stock has dropped 50%, 70%, 30%. Do you understand the company well enough and have you done enough homework that your earned conviction allows you to say, holy cow, I'm going to buy more. You're kidding me. At 50, 
I, when skills went to $8, I said, you know what? I got to buy more. And I know a lot of people feel different about, I'd love to hear your take on skills. I don't know if you still hold it, but even though there were certain pieces that still rubbed me wrong is the, the, the understanding of how they were delivering the business and those earnings calls and, you know, raising only $1 million up on your, your call, things that just were, you could tell it was a company trying to find its way and never been public before. And we're seeing that. But the concept and the valuation was so undervalued. I was like, $8 a share. It's growing 70% revenue. And even if it's buying its customer, that's how Amazon started was buying its customer base. Now, they do have to have Arky turn it profitable. They do have to lower that, S- that sales and, and general expenses, right? And we also saw just recently, yesterday or today, Andrew Paradise buys 432,000 shares. So that gives you confidence as well. But I've given that stock because people ask me all the time, like, oh, you're still holding your shares? Yep, still holding my shares. I haven't sold any. I'm down 50% on my investment. So you can all say, hey, what an idiot. Um, but I invest in companies for the long term. And so my thesis is still intact. Nothing's changed. But we were given commitments by the CEO that they would be in India by end of Q1. Okay, so we have two more quarters. So are they going to be in India, which is one of the most populated mobile user countries in our, in our world and growth out the wild zoo? And we were also told that they would execute to Big Buck Hunter and it would be a success. And it has been. It's actually their number one game now. And it, it it's, uh, has gotten a lot of a lot of success on their tournaments and, and revenue. And then they said that they were going to have an NFL game next fall. So for me, I want to see a NFL game that was worth all that hype and all that marketing and everything else that actually shows that developers are wanting to put their games on this platform that then tells me they will be successful long-term. If they can't put a game that I'm more familiar with or have a created game that is a huge success, a phenomenon, the next Candy Crush, then if the financials don't look much better, come the end of, end of next fall, I'm out selling all my shares because that would have held it for two and a half years. And at that point, then I kind of feel like we've been lied to. If we haven't either improved financially or we're executing what we said we were going to do. What are your thoughts? So I've, I, I held skills for a while and think this is in the beginning of the year. <clears throat> and then my, my original thought behind it was very similar to yours. I was enamored by the ability to change the way games are monetized. Cause that's essentially what skills is in the business of skills is a lot of people like to think of it as, you know, you pay to play. Mm-hmm. That's, that's wrong. No, it's a new way for developers to make money, game developers and skills. Customers are actually the game developers and not the actual users or the, the paying monthly active users. When I started to figure that out, I thought it was very interesting and I, I wanted to buy more skills. And especially when skills first de spacked, it ran from actually it went from 10 was to it 46. It yes, all the way up to $46. That was insane to me. And I was very, very excited about the stock. I thought because it had 95% gross margins, that it had all sorts of great stuff going for it. And then I started to look more into the financials and I started to play the games to understand it more because there was that short report that came out 
And then this is where a lot of my concerns came from with skills. And I like, I hope I don't talk you off your position when I, when I start saying this, but what I started to figure out is there's this thing on their, in their platform, it's called bonus cash. And then also their, their prizes. So this is where their sales and marketing expense is so high. So ideally with bonus cash, let me guess if I can see if I can guess what you're going to say. Cause I think I know with, me as a user, if I leave that platform, they will incentivize with bonus cash or rewards to say, hey, here's 10 bucks to play to bring me back as a customer. Is that correct? Yes, but you can also get it. So I got into playing Big Buck Hunter for a while and I started to figure out that I, if I just played, I would also win bonus cash. So if I won the games, then I would start to win. And then I was also awarded bonus cash very, very often to where I only made one $10 deposit and then ended up building it up to about $30, $35. Obviously nothing too crazy, but I didn't have to put in any more money. That means that they that skills is putting money into the ecosystem mm-hmm. with bonus cash. Mm-hmm. They are realizing this bonus cash as revenue. I only put in $10. And they are realizing this, this revenue through bonus cash. And then that's what's coming out of the sales and marketing expense. So when I consistently see the sales and marketing expense very, very high, this tells me that they are consistently putting more bonus cash into the system, making it artificially look like that they are growing their revenue very fast, but in all actuality, they're not. That's why you see they're paying monthly active users kind of stagnating. And then also their monthly active users stagnating as well. Now, there's one big catalyst for skills. And that's that they can finally create a game that's going to be worth something because all it takes is one Fortnite. All it takes is one candy crush, you know, right. because that's exactly what good, these real good. I mean, for C limited, they have uh, league of legends and then they also have free fire mm-hmm. and both of those games are rockstar. And, and these are the kind of games that really a lot of these game developers can actually monetize. But in this particular instance, skills is nothing more than a platform that's struggling to find its game of identity right now. In my opinion, it's, it's a very, very dangerous investment at the moment, because if they, if they run out of cash and they only have probably 550, 600 million now, if I didn't look at it, this latest quarterly report, yep. Every single quarterly report, I look at it and I look at that sales and marketing expense in terms of revenue. And I say, Nope, you're buying your revenue because that's just what we, we consistently see. And, and then the more money that they have in the skills ecosystem, because you can transfer it over to like the bubble get, Cause I was playing the bubble game there for a little bit too, like bubble burst. I can't remember. Then also I had the big buck hunter and they would also be able to transfer over to, to different platforms, different games, all on the skills platform. So that was really fun, but it's that bonus cash. I just can't get over. And I've, I've heard, I heard from you more detailed version of that than what I've heard on other podcasts and, and people talking about on YouTube. And I, I would say you're spot on on that. And that's why it's, uh, well, one, down 50% on my investment. But it, it's it's still in my top 10, barely, because it has taken such a big hit. But if they can get a game or yep. two, it changes the thesis very quickly. Then you don't need to use bonus cash. You don't need to use any of that. The whole idea of my thesis originally and still is, is they just get one or two games or somehow strike up a partnership with a big developer 
then all of a sudden now you have what I want to play and you're telling me I I can play Dylan at Madden and whoop him and get 20 bucks like yeah let's go like you know that's what my thesis was was let's monetize and then they they talked a lot about monetizing exercise which I think is brilliant like if they figure it out like hey I beat you in steps this week I get five bucks like you think about the possibilities and the possible optionality now does that require a lot of execution yeah it does and, and they have to start innovating and doing that. The first step is getting a real big game. But I totally get your concern. And that's well, why it's not my top, you know, five investments. It, but I did sink a lot up front. Had I understood maybe what you understand now, I probably would have sunk as much. I'll be honest. But here's the thing, too, is that Skills also has another unique opportunity. Remember, remember the, the business that Skills is in is to enable monetization for for game developers. Mm -hmm. So this means that a lot of those like clash of clans, Mm -hmm. clash Royale, these are phone games that I think even a lot of millennials play to this day. Or you can think about Fortnite. You can think about free fire. If a lot of these other developers want to start actually creating new monetization efforts and run it through the skills platform, they can do it because what's unique about skills and their competitive moat is actually going to be their security system. So that's where they're really, really strong with. So it, they don't necessarily need to create their own game. And right. I think no, no, I, I'm sorry. I misspoke. I, I just meant get a, a yeah. major game. They're not the creators of games. Now, if they want to get into that, great. But the whole point is it's, they're not having to deal with all of that, that SNGA and, and, and R&D development for a game. Yep. They just got to find people to put their game on their platform. Yep. So if, if I was Andrew Paradise, and hopefully Andrew Paradise is listening to this, I'd be looking at trying to, to try to do, create a partnership with one of the larger games mm-hmm. that already exist out there. Because imagine if you could play Call of Duty on oh, the skills gosh. platform. Same, same capabilities with Call of Duty already. Everyone can do their $5 buy-in. Let's just say that. It changes the whole idea. Like, I yep. mean, I get excited. I'd, I'd play Call of Duty again, you know? Because now you're playing for money. Yeah, now you're, are you competing and you're in yeah. tournaments and you're playing? For there money. is something to be said about putting a little skin in the game with your friends and trash talking and, and doing all of that. Now, granted, I have two kids and I don't get to play video games very much anymore, yep. but it, it, it definitely creates it's a unique investment. But to your point, you got to do your homework to understand how much risk are you willing to take on. And, you know, it looks like do you hold about 26 stocks or maybe even a little more than that? I want to get it down. I want to get it down. And I I went into this earning season fully anticipating on getting it down. I think I I've sold DraftKings. I I sold DraftKings uh, too this time. I closed it out. I put it down here. I'm done with DraftKings and and it's not that I don't think that it could potentially be a good long-term investment. It's just, I think I'm one of the only people on Twitter that keep pounding the table on Fubo, right? (laughs) Cause it's, I I'm right there in Beth's camp. You know, she picked Roku pretty well. Hold on. For, for those who don't know Beth, uh, most of you do if you're on FinTwit, but Beth Kindig is one of the best software investors out there. And so she she called Fubo and Roku way early. Sorry, go ahead. Yep, yep. So the, the uniqueness with Fubo is that, and this is the bull case behind it. Not So I talked a little bit about the margins, right? But then you also have the uniqueness of owning the audience through your streaming device. So when you have these sports first people that you, 
Now you have their email address, right? So they even said on one of their calls that what they're actually going after is the casual better. So like, let's just say you and I, Dom, we're hanging out or watching or drinking a couple glasses of whiskey, right? And we're watching our favorite sports team. For me, it's Minnesota Vikings, which is very unfortunate, right? For me, it's the Cowboys. So we both had a rough weekend. So, but what we could do is we could even bet against each other on the Fubo sports book saying, you know, I think that this is going to be the next play. Like, I think that the Vikings are going to miss a field goal. And I'll say that as a Vikings fan, I could place a wager on it and, and actually get paid out real time while the game is playing. So you can make bets on, on plays you can. And this is so that the proprietary technology here is that Fubo is not necessarily in the business of, of just sports. They are in the business of interactive TV. That's what they are trying to create. They, so they find a way to monetize it through sports wagering and being a sports first streaming service. But later on down the road, you can have these girls get together and they can do wagers on, on bachelorette parties or even play. I knew that's where you're going. I knew you were going to say that. You can play reality TV shows and do that. But right now, it's all sports, right? That $65 a month is only going to get you sports, right? No, 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 no. So you can get every, you can get everything. So like I even pre-record Shark Tank. I, I watch all the football so games. So for $65, you get all of that? You get live TV. So what they do is they partner with the other broadcasters that are out there like Fox, ABC, all of them, right? I, okay. I don't even know how many other networks there are out there. Okay. Interesting. Well, I knew yeah. Beth was into it and got me excited. So I, you definitely have had me to think twice and have to do my homework. I, I like that idea of uh, now what's stopping DraftKings from having that interactive play? Cause they have partnerships up to the wild yin yang with Disney and, and ESPN and, yep. and all of that. So they, they originally, cause I own DraftKings and Fubo for a while. They originally actually ended up announcing on their last quarterly call, not this recent one, but the one before that, that they had a lot of opportunity and, content and like basically doing what Fubo is doing, right? So having sports streamed directly on their DraftKings sports betting device, and they actually created a, a partnership with the MLB. The difference is, is the process of what they're doing it. So they created a sports betting, fantasy football, gambling application first, and right. then they want to try to integrate TV within it. Fubo did it the other way around they created the TV to get the subscribers to come to them. And then they're going to try to have them like, I I don't even say that they're necessarily wanting to push because it's only going to be available in select States that they can get full legalization with. So right now it's just Iowa. The whole idea is that we we think that, you know, electronic betting will eventually be fully legalized in the U S just like cannabis. Right. I mean, eventually the States need tax money and it's a lot of tax money that they can get. You know, what interested me about DraftKings was not only were they first to market and they were the, you know, the name brand that everyone recognizes sports betting with to some degree or FanDuel, but I experienced their platform. It's a great platform was that when COVID hit, they got creative and they started doing betting on people playing esports like Call of Duty and stuff. And that was like, okay. To be able to pivot this quickly and to get people to watch esports and bet on it and have a platform and technology able to do that, that was where they, I was like, okay, there's a lot of, of optionality here. I think what I'm doing is what you're doing. 
you've done a better job of it with only six, 26 positions is I'm consolidating down and I want to get to, you know, if I get to 25, I think I'll be thrilled 20 ideally, but I have 77 right now. So we're chopping away. <laughs> uh, and just so you know, folks, because I know I'm going to get DMS after this about 77 positions, my top 20 make up 90% of my portfolio. So your uh, winners win, right? That's just the natural, that naturally, if you hold your stocks long enough, you will have a consolidated portfolio of what matters. But I have to want to follow the stock. And there were just so many other stocks that were closer to my area of expertise and things that I got excited about. And that weren't necessarily dependent on a cyclical season or the behavior necessarily of humans having this need to gamble or, or, or do something psychologically. Does that make sense? Like, so for instance, I closed out my position. I put all that money into Palantir because what are some things that we know will, you cannot refute. You cannot refute that by uh, 2030, we will have 10 X the data we have now. Actually, it'll be more than that. Right. Yep. You can't refute that 50% of the data in the world is going to the edge computing in 2025. You can, can't refute that 90% of data is not even being utilized within enterprises because they don't know how to use it and bring it all together and make decisions. That excites me because I live in that world. I work in that world. And there's so many possibilities when you look at data. Doesn't mean that DraftKings can't be a five-bagger, 10-bagger, whatever it may be. But my confidence level and my conviction and the amount of hours I've poured into Palantir and how I can literally tweet about it every day because there's something new they're doing. It was easy to just take that money and put it in something I, I love. You know, if, if I if we had a couple stocks that we'd wear jerseys of, I'd have that black and white, man. I'd have a badass <laughs> Palantir jersey. It, it would be sick, you know. Yeah. So it's tough though, isn't it? It's tough trying to take to 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 narrow it down because we love this. We love investing. I, I find it yeah. so fun to, you know find a company at what you've done in, in the small, you know, small cap or micro cap level and watch it grow. I was blessed and fortunate. My two, I call them my lucky ones because you got to have, you got to be humble, right? In investing. Yes. There's luck involved with this. I don't care. Anybody says there, no one could have predicted that trade desk goes 30% today in one day, right? No. People were short selling that crap and, and put bringing it all the way down to $69 a share on Friday. And I had a sticky feeling. I, I just, I, I it's the trade desk. Yeah, you, you so can't dumb. bet. I said sticky, sneaky feeling that Jeff Green was just going to blow it out, and he, you know, knew the IDFA, and he, he knew about how to combat that with his UID 2.0. They're in China. They're heavily embedded in China too. He was getting into there way early and has partnerships there, and it's so volatile when they have a bad reporting, it goes crazy. But then when they have a good one, I mean, 30% in one day, like you can't predict that stuff. I'll tell you another stock that nobody's talking about right now that I think is on, on a very, very large, long trajectory upwards. And that's going to be big commerce. And a lot of people would be, would say, Dylan, are you crazy? You're betting against, Shopify and actually enabling Shopify's competitor. I, I tell everybody, go look at the Gartner Magic Quadrant because these people know a lot more than I do. And you actually have big commerce directly right there with Shopify competing. And then there are, it's just like Sentinel One and CrowdStrike. People always have this recency big bias. Space. Yep. 
they think they think that the first mover is always going to be the winner but there's a major second mover advantage to try to pave a different path so when you think about big commerce they ended up running up about 30 percent as well from this latest earnings call there's a big there's a couple big things that we're seeing here with big commerce that right now they're experiencing accelerated revenue growth and it's not even just this latest quarter it's going to be over the past think when they first IPO'd, they said, because I ended up following them back in 2020 when they when they first IPO'd, and there's a whole bunch bunch of speculative euphoria because Shopify just oh, yeah. rallied, you know, a million percent. And then you get big commerce coming IPO and they're like, this is the next Shopify. And then everyone dumps <laughs> on into the stock, yeah. runs it up to $140 per share. That's why you see big commerce's chart look like that. It's because there's a bunch of euphoria around e-commerce stocks at that point. But big commerce right now what they're doing is that they are, do they have an international expansion? Gosh, they're doing like this multi storefront right now where they're going to enable the same merchant that they have to run two different stores underneath one single platform that they have right now. And that they're, it's really interesting to actually see that their year over year comps during 2020, they grew about 35% year over year. Their latest earnings report had them growing at 49% year over year. And this is, the reason why this is the most interesting is that we ended up seeing Shopify and we ended up seeing AWS both miss expectations and produce a much significantly smaller, not AWS, you, you know what I was saying, Amazon's marketplace. They, they ended up producing significantly less, like a contracted growth, but big commerce actually accelerated and beat their, their year over year comps for, for 2020. That to me was the most interesting, and that has to do with the uniqueness of their business model and their differentiator because they're more focused on the enterprise. So Shopify is focused on the SMB, mm-hmm. and 60% of Shopify's revenues actually come from Shopify's services, not necessarily mm-hmm. their e-commerce website, where big commerce is only an e-commerce enablement website, and they have... Think, I think they said, don't quote me on this. I want to say it's about 70% of their total revenue and enterprise customers. So they're significantly more focused on enhancing their capabilities to be more robust. So, and I haven't looked at the comparison since they went public when there was a lot of, a lot of hype about both. Wouldn't you say that Shopify has a much higher gross margin because a lot of their stuff is based off of their services, their shop capital, shop pay, their investing arm, you know, I mean, all their different things, their partnerships with Pinterest, Walmart, Amazon, they, I think they're running like 70% more gross margins. Don't quote me that on either because I haven't looked at the earnings since last week. But I think when I looked at big, big commerce it was like in the fifties. It's 80%. 80 now. Okay. So yes. Uh, They've seen, they've seen gross margin expansion as well. Okay. So not only is their gross margin so that's not interesting. Only are they accelerating the revenue growth, but their gross margin accelerated as well. Well, I should say expanded from about 70% up to 80% okay. uh, from, from 2020. So the, the whole business, since they IPO'd and since they ended up getting the cash on hand, doing the international expansion, continuing to scale. Well, you know they have a partnership with Mercado Libre. Yep. And, and, and that, that was what interests me. I said, okay, who's, who, who's shop going to partner with? Are they, are, are they going in with Amazon or, or are they going in with uh, C limited now to, to, you know, cause you know, C limited and Mercado are 
definitely fighting for Latin. I thought it was really intriguing and interesting where Sea Limited went into Poland out of all places. <laughs> <laughs> it went into Poland and then the next day it went into Spain. And I think the next day it went into France. I was like, that's odd. Okay. Okay. And I'm not, I'm, I don't, don't doubt Sea Limited. That's a three headed gross monster. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's my fifth biggest holding and I have not held it as long as my top three or four. Talk to me about sell me. No, I know that conviction's not <laughs> bought or borrowed, but get me interested enough to do DD due diligence and research on SI and that company. Oh, yeah. I believe that's the crypto company, correct? Man, you chose a great company for me to talk about. I won't, I won't sell you on anything, but what I will do is I'll talk about the business model and see if this could interest you. How about that? There you go. That's, let's do okay. that. Yeah. I like that better. So with Silvergate, this is actually one I've been following since 2020 when it started moving up pretty quick. And then it started going up and up and up and up. And then it right there around that bubble, I, I'm just going to start calling it the COVID bubble because there was a bunch of speculative stocks that just ran up way past their fundamentals and it popped. A lot of investors got hurt, me included. But with Silvergate, when, when at the bottom of the May correction with, with growth stocks, it ended up getting around my buy point about 70 or $80 per share. And currently that's where my dollar cost average is now. And currently it's trading up to about 200 to 220. Oh my so gosh. Major returns here just over the past couple months. So I ended up doing Do it right. That that's not normal. I don't know. I, I don't think that it's normal, but it seems to be a pretty common occurrence, especially if you can find out these because upstart did the same thing. Digital yeah, I'm, blown away. I'm, I'm blown away about that one too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you take it back two years and it was few and far between a stock would go 300% in less than a year, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think it's up 750% right now. Upstart is. Oh my gosh. I missed the boat on that one. <laughs> missed the boat on that one. I know I saw enough FinTwit love on it. I think I got to start putting a little caveat on my, you know, I know I'm trying to shrink my portfolio, but if I see enough people talking about something, I probably should at least give the, give the chance to look at it. That's why I'm not in at Palantir at a cost basis of $9. Instead, I'm at a cost basis of 25. Me too. Um, I'm at a cost basis of 25. Yeah. But anyway, okay. So let's go to this business model. Silvergate. So what they are is they're a bank, right? They're a federally insured bank. So they're part of the fed, but they're a fintech at the same time. So what they've done is that they've actually created what's called the Silvergate Exchange Network, the SEN, S-E-N, the SEN. So I'll refer to it as that. So you have two components of their business. You have the normal bank that is able to really stabilize a lot of that volatility out of the stock. That's why you don't see it running up and down with Bitcoin, right? So with Silvergate, you have like lending, the home lending, you got personal loans, you got business loans. And so you can really just think of a bank and you can think about a portion of Silvergate's uh, revenue, right? As well as their earnings, because they're a very profitable business. Their, their revenue is, and their earnings have just grown incredibly. But then they have the SEN, and this is where it's the most interesting. Not too long ago, they just ended up announcing a partnership with Facebook's soon to be Meta, DM Coin. Because Meta wants to go, Meta, Meta wants to do a stable coin that is going to be a lot like how Remitly works. But what they want is, is they want to be able to transfer currency 
cross-border all over the world on the blockchain, and they want to use DM to do it. Mm -hmm. Silvergate is going to provide the infrastructure to do that, right? Because on their Silvergate Exchange network, what they do is they actually work with a lot of the top brokerages, crypto brokerages, and exchanges out there. This includes Coinbase. This includes Gemini, Voyager. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. But you already a named lot of the two those, biggest ones. So. Exactly. So you, they work with all these guys. And what they can do is they enable the transactions, the 24-7 transactions, in, when you are exchanging either from dollars to crypto or crypto to dollars or crypto to crypto. So essentially what they're doing is they're creating, think about it as like, th- there needs to be a highway right? From people right. to get from point A to point B, they're creating the infrastructure for people to get from point A to point B in a secure and compliant manner. The, the uniqueness of the SEND infrastructure is the more people that are on it, the more people need to be on it. Because now you create an, an invaluable competitive moat because other people are on the SEND infrastructure. If you're on the SEND infrastructure, that means that, and if you want to be in the crypto game, you have to get on the SEND infrastructure. In addition to that, too, they also create a very, very unique opportunity for institutions to invest into crypto and actually have a safe and secure way of doing it, storing it in a bank So backed by the, the Fed. What's the difference between them and Coinbase? Because I know that's what I've heard a lot about Coinbase is, hey, we're FDI insured. You're investing in a stock. You're not investing in the actual coin. And you're paid on the transactions, both selling and buying. So walk me through just what are those differentiations between or the the same business model, essentially? Dude, Coinbase uses the send. Does that make sense? So like, Okay, so the send is basically they do not the, 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 picks, the, the picks and shovels that enables Coinbase. That's it. That's exactly what that is. Yes, because they're... Yeah, they're the picks and shovels, but I mean, they, oh gosh, and I wish that I could actually talk more about this because I've, it's been so long since I've looked into the business model, probably a couple months now, but it really is just like this connected highway of a bunch of institutions that are able to send and receive cryptocurrencies to each other. Okay, so the bet is that crypto is here to stay, which, you know, we'd most agree with. Some people still like to argue that point, but the long-term thesis is reliant on crypto and conversion from cash to crypto needing to be around, right? Because the the long-term thesis is that people are going to need a bank to store their crypto in. So the long-term- If if crypto is no longer, then where does this stock go? Well, they still, you still got your bank component, right? So then it becomes like a normal bank, basically. So if you want a way to put, to make a play on the government regulating crypto, there's Silvergate is the bank and it okay. is the ticker symbol to do it. So if you think that if you believe in crypto, right? And if you think that crypto is going to have to be regulated one day, and then there's a long longer term opportunity here that if they do come out with the Fed coin, that Silvergate is in a very very unique leadership position to host that stablecoin on the sen. So the play is on regulation of crypto play is crypto yielding being an important use case in our society long term and more importantly stable coins facebook's dm 
and then even potentially the Fed coin later on down the road. So that's what that's what Silvergate is. Are they founder led? They are I think so, but they were they were actually founded in the 1980s. So this oh, wow. this is a bank. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure the guy who found it wasn't thinking about crypto. <laughs> he was. That's the uniqueness is that he's been in the banking industry for so long that he ended up coming across crypto and they just started investing in the sen around 2010 and they said there's, wow. a, there's a thing here. I, whoa, whoa, 2010. No, 2015 when Bitcoin first came out. So they, they ended up noticing that crypto was a big thing. And they said, this is going to disrupt the entire financial industry. We need to start making investments into our infrastructure now to take advantage of this. Well, that's and that's what Silvergate is, is that they're, they're a leader in this category. So we're coming up on an hour, but I still want to talk if you got time. Well, we may have to cut this up into two episodes. I see you have one of my favorite tools in your stocks and this is where it gets dicey because I already have so many positions, but you have a fun <laughs> portfolio and, and you've already got me wanting to do some more homework. And I know this product kicks ass is zoom info. Zoom info yep. makes a phenomenal, you work in sales. You probably use zoom info. Right. I use zoom info more than Salesforce because it's so accurate on contacts and data and it's easy to use. You partner that with the private company outreach and you can automate your email campaigns, your call campaigns, calendar. It's what every salesperson wants, right? How do I find out and get the most accurate contact? And, and I can get an org chart, right? Like in other departments. I, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that they're growing so fast. I'm actually shocked they're not growing faster because the product's that good. You know, man, this is just one of those stocks you just can't overthink. Yeah. I, every single time somebody starts like, they're like, why should I buy Zoom Info? And I said, they're growing 50, 60% year over year and they're, they're profitable. And they're a software company and they're a, ne- they're a necessity yeah. to salespeople. Yes. And this, is, this means that you are absolutely enabling the business driver of your business. It is directly aligned with the revenue goals. And that means that it has this deep, 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 sticky competitive moat that you cannot get rid of. Once your sales force starts using Zoom Info in the first place, you can't get rid of it because yeah. your sales force decides that we want this, we yeah. need this, it's very <laughs> valuable for us, it saves us time. We yes. can go out there, we can sell, we don't have to prospect, we don't have to dig for information. So it's right, right there, boom. That's right. Do you know they have that new chorus acquisition where I thought this was futuristic, where when you're doing Zoom calls like this, it will read the the facial expressions and everything that your customer is making and give you an analysis of how interested they really were on what you were talking about. And I just thought, wow, but you're spot on. It's definitely one that's more simpler. And I like those simple pieces. (laughs) I appreciate the straightforwardness of some of these companies where it's like, okay, I uh, that's a trend that's not going away, right? If anything, my my whole thesis with them was, once again, I only have a couple shares at $46. I should have just loaded the boat. I knew, you know, it's going up. Is that they probably won't be their own entity for long. I would have to think that either Microsoft or Salesforce is like, they will be a competitor to us if they get an arm of a CRM. If that if they merged with HubSpot, could you imagine the disruption that they would cause? 
partnered with HubSpot. I just listened. They to partner. The they partner. They partner. But imagine having a CRM with that kind of data and that kind of technology, right? Yep. Um, because Salesforce, to my knowledge, and they, you know, they may they have a lot of tiers of Salesforce. But what I've seen is, at the end of the day, it's up to your sales reps to keep their their contacts up to date. If you have reps who are don't want other people to know that, hey, this is my real contact, or this is, you know, and they don't, and the, and the, the turnover rate in that territory happens, your data is, you know, your accuracy is only as good as your data is upkept, right? And so with Zoom Info, they do a really good job of keeping up to date on those contacts and validating that. You know, on their latest earnings call, they did end up mentioning that they wanted to be used on top of a CRM, but I think it's very, very important that the CRM is made for the leadership team. Zoom info is made for the rep. The rep yeah. wants to use Zoom info because it drives. Well said. Forward. That should be like their slogan. That like yeah. that was well said. The CRM is used for the management team because they're the ones digging into the forecast accuracy. <laughs> the se- I mean, we live this, right? We live yeah. this. Your call the ball. Your Hey, what deals are coming in? Like they live in that, but sales reps live in the Zoom info world of of getting to the right contacts. And, you know, we're all living in 90 day cycles, right? As as a salesperson. I just like how you said that. Sorry, I cut you off. I just, I could see that on a t-shirt. Zoom info is for sales reps, CRM is for leaders. And they did say that they wanted to be used in like on top of a CRM. I think- I think that they, that could be a potential later on down the road, but I think that they're in a different business. And I think that it it doesn't matter. I think some people are concerned about LinkedIn, but I've used both and and LinkedIn doesn't come close to talking about like where, where zoom info is like, it just provides so much useful analytics and information and data. And and more importantly, the org chart is right there. Mm -hmm. So like, Let's say I have some white space opportunity in one of the accounts that I'm working in right now. I can just pull it up and just be like, oh, wow, they're, they're probably somebody I should talk to. Then you can just reach out to them right there. You don't have to dig through LinkedIn. You don't have to do any sort of weird customizations. And most, some people don't even have LinkedIn. Like a lot of oh, people yeah. that work in IT, like engineers, they don't care about that. They, they don't want to be found. <laughs> yeah. they, don't, they don't want to be bothered. <laughs> LinkedIn is made for salespeople and recruiters. That's what LinkedIn is made for. Yeah. Yeah. I would. It's so fun to talk to a fellow sales guy, man. You definitely have, I, I hate how our, how diverse our, our portfolios are. You have me having to do a lot more homework and trying to <laughs> see which ones of these I'm going to be adding. You know, let's, let's maybe bring up my portfolio. Let's, let's see some of the ones that are not in yours and we'll just, not that I'm going to sell you. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> Ginkgo Bio. So, okay, so I gotta, I gotta know. I mean, all my listeners want to know this. Why do you not hold Nvidia? I think it's so. Nvidia has got a really great long-term thesis, but there's very few companies that I'll, I'll actually buy when they're over a certain market cap. So it's not that I understand that Nvidia is going to be something great in the future, and could it be a ten trillion dollar company? I think that's probably the company that can do it. A 10X stock in the micro cap world is me buying. So I ended up buying AgriFi at a $200 million market cap. You know, I just needed to go to 2 billion. 
right? So I typically take a Peter Lynch approach because he did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I just really try to buy stocks under probably about a $20 billion market cap with the exception of Palantir, because Mm -hmm. I think that Palantir can probably be a $10 trillion company and it's a $50 billion market cap. So that's That's the first thing that jumped out at me about your portfolio. Yep. Um, my portfolio looked a lot like yours early on and it's kind of morphed as time's gone on with, with my winners winning. I just think from a, a stability standpoint, from a, I go back to, I, I made this uh, tweet that I hand wrote about having a checklist, right? How do I compare stocks and who stays, who goes, who, who do I want to over index on? Because I'm just so convinced of, of conviction and having a scoring system. So I named it the world changers scoring system, because I think one thing, there's certain things that aren't quantifiable, right? That you have to take into consideration. I think you would agree that I've heard you talk about, you have to have imagination. Yep. We're not investing in today. We're not, right? If you were, you just go out and, and buy Apple and buy a whole bunch of things that you know is, is eventually, you know, going to slowly go up and it's not going anywhere, but we're investing in the future 10, 20, 30 years and what our world will look like. And NVIDIA, if you were to go back 28 years ago when it's a graphics card company to say what it's become, there was no telling. You'd have to have imagination that they would be getting into the semiconductor world, getting into AI, getting into robotics, getting into genomic, all these different things, getting into gaming. So now where does that leave us? And if you watched last year's GTC conference, Jensen's giving the keynote tomorrow for this year's um, you could never have predicted all the different things they were launching with having a DPU chip where they have data networking compute all on one chip, a data center in a box fully built in with zero trust security. Right. I mean, if there's one company I could think of that has the iRobots, if you ever seen that movie that come out and they create and they, you know, do your, do your laundry. I've always wanted a robot that can just do my chores for me this is the company, you know? And so, and the fact that they have 17 car manufacturers using NVIDIA drive, I do think that they, you know, and Tesla kicked them to the curb because Tesla wanted to do their own. I definitely think they're going to be playing a relevant position in our world all around for, I agree. for all facets. Yeah. And I absolutely agree, but it's the same reason why I still don't own Microsoft. I still don't own Google, and even though these these stocks have, I think Google is actually up about 100% this year because stock buybacks and just just awesome execution. So I, I think that a lot of these other stocks, I mean, yeah, they're, they're performing great. And don't get me wrong, I'm not bearish on NVIDIA at all, but it's the same concept as why I don't really own any large cap tech stocks at all. Like I don't own Amazon, I don't own Microsoft, I don't own, just because I, I want that 100X, 100 bagger opportunity. You know, like that's what I want because that's what's going to change my life later on down the road, you know, by getting upstart and just letting upstart sit, you know, it's going to be a leading AI company one day too. Right now they're just an AI lending, but one day it's, it's not, I actually posted on this on, on my Substack earlier. I said, people don't understand that upstart isn't an AI lending company. It's an AI company led by a Google executive. Like that's what it is. It's starting off as an AI lending company. And he's multiple times mentioned that we want to get into other areas of AI. So it's an artificial intelligence company. I think upstart later on down the road is going to be a lot different than what we see it as today. And I made, I made a 
bullish statement one time, and it, this is when it was like a $8 billion market cap. I said, one day Upstart's going to be a $300 billion company. And I, I still believe that even to this day, because that's, that's what I'm looking for. I want to buy those. I want to buy those new IPOs like Global E that has the opportunity to just close the entire world. You know, that's essentially what they do is they enable cross-border e-commerce, you know, so there's a massive opportunity for upside later on down the road. But do you think that they get to grow that far before someone says, no, you've grown enough. We're going to just buy you because it's going to be cheaper for us to buy you than build it. Yep. And that could happen. That could absolutely happen. But then that's when I'll just sell. You know, it's really active portfolio management. I, I'll cut stocks. I think I cut stocks faster than than a majority of retail investors do. That's actually that, a good question. I was going to ask you, like, how long do you, what's your time horizon? What, how long do you hold stocks? That kind of thing. You know, what, what, what's the goal, right? I talk on my show a lot about know thyself and, and you obviously have a goal in mind, a mission, a thesis, a process that you stick to. I mean, right off the bat, when I looked at your portfolio, I was like, man, he has some, some young guns that have just blossomed quick. And, yeah. and, you know, walk us through what the goals are and how you think through that. Because I think a lot of investors just look at FinTwit and they see what everyone's saying and they want to jump on it. But there's no real goal in my life. For me, my goal <laughs> yep. is 10 years from now, I don't have to work in sales. I can take a 75% pay cut. I can work for, start my own investing service, whatever. And even if it doesn't pay a lot, I'm financially independent and I get to do what I love most is having Zoom calls like this and just telling people and helping them learn they can make their money work for them and start now. It's, you know, the time is your friend. And the sooner you start, the power of compounding will change your life. You know, it just, it's so sad that some, I mean, I'm, you're 30. You got six years on me. I got all this gray hair from being a manager before. And, you know, I I have some friends who are 20 years old knowing about stocks. And I wish, you know, during that time I was index fund investing, which is still something, but, you know, I could have easily, you know, already been retired had I had that thought process and education. Yeah. I think, I think I might end up, I think I have the opportunity to, to retire in the next five to six years realistically i live a very conservative life you know i got my fiance here we don't have kids yet so i I can really just put a lot of money away into the markets and just grow my portfolio and and i've really created like how you mentioned before a very defined stock picking strategy where this defined stock picking strategy is is absolutely focused on in-depth fundamental analysis and compounding you know Mm -hmm. we might be in a bubble (laughs) yeah we there's a very strong chance that right now our our market is in a bubble. It's looking very bubbly, and yeah. I think that I think that's very important. But I'm not. I don't know about you. I'm not going to pull out because no, I'll hedge my portfolio. I can't. I can't time it. I don't want to time it. It's too stressful. I will say today gave me a chance where I almost thought about trimming trade desk and just saying, you know what? It's probably going to go back down fifteen percent. I'm going to sell it all and buy it all back cheaper. I'm like, why? What's the point? Like at the end of the day, if I believe this company is going to be a multi hundred billion dollar company and it's only like a 40, 50 billion dollar company, I can't after today, I don't know where it stands. Why? Why does it, you know, uh, sometimes it's more stress than not trying to in and out. I I know traders and I'm like, the statistic is 80% of traders quit. I think it's actually maybe 90% after five years. 
it's some obscene number, like 1% of traders is actually profitable. Yeah. yeah so yeah. that just tells us like how in-depth FinTwit. I consider myself as a trader, but I really? actively manage my investments. That's why I trade stocks, right? I do not swing trade. I do not think to myself like, hey, the chart looks like this. I think it's going to go here. I'm not going to look at some historical reference to try to get an accurate depiction of the future. No, you have to make sure that you understand the, the, the fundamentals, right? Understand the fundamentals of the company. You get a really great idea of what's going to happen in the future, right? So, so why do you say you're a trader? Like, like because what, how, how long are you holding these stocks? So I'm holding a stock with the anticipation on holding it for to be the next Microsoft, right? That's what I'm mm-hmm. holding it. That's what my intention is. Wasn't well, that investing though? That is investing. But the reason why I say that I'm a trader is that I do make a lot of adjustments to my portfolio very, very frequently. Like it would be very what would be an example, uh, uh, example of that, that you made an adjustment. So I think Pubmatic is a really good idea. So I originally had Pubmatic at a, at a cost basis of like 35 or $36. Okay. But I sold that stock to tax harvest to collect because I, I don't want, so I, I usually make money trading on any given year, but I don't want to record any of that. So I, I record my losses pretty quick. So I'll record my losses, let it, especially if I think the chart looks a certain way to where there's a lot of overhead resistance and I'll let it actually go 30 days, let it trade sideways, let it figure itself out, create that base, and I'll re-enter the position again. And that's just from a tax perspective. Because right. I have my income, I always have to pay Uncle Sam in some money because you know you start making some more money. And then you have unrealized, no, you have untaxed realized gains, and you're you know just basically selling stocks and everything like that. So I take it, that's the 80-20 rule, right? 80% fundamentals, 20% technicals, but it's also 80% investor. 20% trader. It's but what if you had it in a Roth IRA where you weren't getting taxed? So I have a taxable brokerage and I also have an IRA right now. And I don't know why I haven't started in a Roth IRA. Probably that would be my recommendation to you. You yeah. gave me a lot of good <laughs> feedback and tips. I would say most of my money is tied up in a Roth because with a Roth IRA, a uh, couple different things that people don't know, you can actually use it for your kids or yourself for college not taxed. So you can pull it out early. So that's for my kids college fund. Their college is already paid for. Although we don't know if they'll go to college now after the way our school systems are might, you can almost learn everything on YouTube, you know, and maybe, <laughs> right. maybe they, they get a house from us because you can also use it for a first person, first time house purchase. And not Give them ten thousand bucks. Teach them how to trade stocks. Talk yeah, right. Stocks. Exactly. <laughs> uh, start, I'm already. Uh, my kids are always coming like, "Daddy, are you doing stocks again? How boring!" <laughs> I'm like, "Trust me, you will. You will want to learn this early." And I tell them, like, "If LOLs weren't private, you would be buying them." <laughs> that, that's what I'm, I'm in LOL and Spider Man zone. So they did did have some Disney, and I. I didn't tell them, but I sold their Disney for Palantir. So <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good move. I thought it was a great move. I felt guilty as heck, but I was like, nah, Palantir's going to outpace Disney in 10 years. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, having a distinct style. And for me with the Roth is, you know, I don't plan on touching this. This is what gives me peace. I don't plan on touching this until I'm 59. 
but I do have an individual brokerage account that I do want to touch earlier and pay tax on. I'm okay with that. But I have a balance because I know the interest rates. I don't know. I say, I said, I hypothesize that the interest rates will be much higher when I'm older. And I just don't want to pay tax on that. I'd rather pay tax up front, you know? Oh man, that's for a whole nother discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I can talk to you about macroeconomics and you'll, you'll school me there. That's not my wheelhouse, but definitely we can save that for another time. Well, I don't want to hold our viewers up. We we said we were going to do only an hour. I don't know how long we've been clocking, but we will definitely do this again. I can talk to you about stocks anytime. And I know we've been on some of the longest Palantir uh, Twitter spaces and digital turbine. I've really enjoyed this, Dylan. So for those of you guys who are not following Dylan, please do so. Get on FinTwit. It's at Blue uh, Suit Dylan. So B-L-U Suit D-I-L-L-O-N. And uh, you'll see a lot of commentary and following of different stocks. And, and he posts a lot. Also, if you want to plug your Substack as well. Yeah. So what my Substack really is, is and I got a YouTube channel as well. And that's just a, a really a way for me to visually share my research. But what I like to do with Substack is, is I like to give people an opportunity to, to really consolidate the amount of time that they spend looking at a stock in the way that if you liked my investment style that I talked about here today, that is the, the quickest way for you to get access to that, right? So I spend hours and days doing research on these stocks, developing a business thesis, talking about the fundamentals of the company. And usually it's consolidated and in a 15 minute, easy to read, uh, usually tells a really great story thesis, right? And then in addition to that too, I often post about trading strategies as well as portfolio management strategies and general macroeconomics. I've noticed that there's not many people that are interested in that. So I may not post that too much more. (laughs) So I may stick with portfolio strategies, trading strategies, and new stock ideas. That's this that consistently is one of one of mine that a lot of my members currently. So I got a couple hundred members now at this point. So you wouldn't be alone. And then thousands of people who currently follow my Substack at the same time. So if you guys really like the idea of finding new, young, growing companies with a strong fundamental thesis, with growing revenue and earnings, I highly suggest you at least check out my Substack. I would second that. And also macroeconomics are important as well. You know, not that for those traders, obviously they're paying attention to when things fluctuate, but we talked about it in the beginning of the show, buying a stock in a heavy position that you're building at $25 share versus 50. There is a significant difference if you're holding that stock for 20 years from a compounding rate, right? Yep. So even though I know you hear a lot about, you know, with long-term investing folks that it doesn't matter when you buy in, uh, of that, you know, if you're holding it a long time, it's going to have a, it's going to outperform the market. It's going to give re- great returns, but there is a concept of overpaying for something. That's why we have valuations. Don't get too caught up in valuations because I think sometimes it's okay if something's considered quote unquote overvalued, Yeah. right? Because you want to look at your time horizon. You want to look at what the optionality is. There's a lot of things that can't be priced in. I think there's a lot of new products that Palantir will have that are not priced in. There's a lot of other expansive capabilities, right? So just be careful of not getting stuck in this valuation bubble. But at the same time, I'm, I'm learning this as I'm growing as an investor. 
I'll give you an example is when trade desk at 69 on Friday, I was just kicking myself because I had a little extra money in my account. And I was like, you know, for my paycheck, I was like, why don't I just buy that? I know this goes and fluctuates. And I, there is not one thing that has changed my thesis. Jeff Green is an extremely smart young man, proven CEO, and he's not going anywhere. Right. And and so when you see those stocks and, and you see the overreaction, it's like, that's your conscious, like, okay, you know, and I struggle with this because I want to get Palantir to my number one spot as soon as possible, which I kind of have to weigh like, okay, since my time horizon is maybe not the same as yours, I want to hold 10 to 15 years. Do I think Palantir is going to outperform Trade Desk in 10 to 15 years? Yes. So that's why yeah. it's going to Palantir. So it, it, it's a tough, you know, you have to really find your, your process that works for you. But once you do, you just do the homework you know, build some investor friends to follow and meet and, 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 and keep up with your thesis and take notes, journal. I look back and I found some old journal notes of what my account was back in 2019. I was like, holy moly. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I was like, you tell me that my money had grown that much. And of course my wife says it's fake money because it's not, you know, can't touch it. You know, (laughs) depends on if you're asking Janet Yellen or not. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I've had just such a good time. Hopefully our listeners had a good time, too. Please follow Dylan. Subscribe to the the podcast as well, Dominating Your Investments. Remember, it's never too late to dominate your investments uh, and to get started today. So I hope this helps you get some encouragement on how to look at a company from a qualitative and quantitative perspective. And if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at DominicRinaldi9 and give me a follow and look forward to uh, providing more content like this on my podcast. Now for the disclaimer, dominating your investment is for entertainment and educational purposes only. This should not be taken as financial advice and is just that of my opinion on investing. If you found that informational, helpful and entertaining, in today's interview, you can also give me a follow at Dominic Rinaldi 9. Thank you again for listening. And remember, it's never too late to start dominating your investments.